This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Dun-dun. Welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. My name is Lisa. Hello. My name is Kara. Hello. And every week we recap an episode of Law & Order SVU. We tell you the true crime that it was based on, and then we talk to someone from the episode. And today's no different. We've got somebody great and... Lisa, now we just chatteroo. What's up with you? Yeah, what if one day we're like, and today's guest, not that good, but we couldn't find <laughs> anyone better. So enjoy this dickhole. Um, <laughs> I, I have a question for you and the listeners. Yeah. I don't know what's up. So um, my friend's birthday is coming up. So I went on our street, you know, our main, our main street of stores. Uh-huh. And did a little circle, did a little, you know, uh, a little gift bag from all our favorite I love, stores. I love a gift bag. And so uh, we're at daughter and, uh, while, um, the employee, not the owner is like packaging all the gifts I got and like making them really cute. Like she made everything very cute. And she's talking about the store across the street crush art things. She goes, yeah, I buy paints there. And I go, Oh, do you love to paint? And the energy shifted in a way that I had asked her, like, can I touch your pussy? Like it really <laughs> like all of a sudden she just stared at me and got quiet and weird. And I looked at our Michael and I was like, oh, was that a weird question? I'm sorry. And she goes, no, no, it's it's really nice. Of you. And then that was that. And then it just became dead silence for like two minutes. And then we picked back up and the, we ended on a good note. But I just don't understand what I all I said was, do you love to paint? And I don't know what I did to cause such because then when we left, I go, that was weird. Right. And he goes, that was I don't know what was going on. She fully shut down. Like, I don't understand why I was so I don't know why it was inappropriate, but I'm obviously in my head about it. He said that maybe like she doesn't have that much of personal conversations. I'm like, that's not personal. She said she bought paint. I asked if she loves to paint. We were me, our friend Michael and the employee. We were all just small chatting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's a it's a tiny neighbor, not a tiny neighborhood, but there. No, I always chat to the people in that store. Yeah, I'm there. All that's there's only like five stores next to my house. And that's where everything comes from now. <laughs> so, yeah, the employee just fully shut down and became so weird. And I just like didn't know if I did something wrong. I don't think you did anything wrong. I feel like that's so bizarre. Yeah. Michael was like, you yeah, know, you shut down and got very bashful. I go, yeah. Cause I, th- I didn't know what I did. I <laughs> I started like looking at my shoes. Yeah. I was like, okay, it's sorry. not like you were, yeah. It's not like you were like, Oh, you do threesomes. Like, yeah, yeah it wasn't like a full, that's so, that's I really strange, high, but it was like, what have I done? 
It was weird. I wonder if you said it like you said it genuinely, but maybe she read it as sarcastic in a weird way. Like, oh, do you love to paint? Oh, you do? <laughs> like, maybe, you know what I mean? Like, what if she read it that way? Like, completely erroneously? I'm sure you weren't doing that. But like, no. and then she was like, okay, bitch, I was just trying to tell you that that's where I buy paint. Like, I don't know. That's okay. the only thing I can think of. That, I just needed something that it wasn't like <laughs> me being the worst social person in the world. I was like, what have I done at my favorite store? But um, yeah, maybe it, she thought it was disingenuous. I just try not to, um, I don't like asking people like, what do you do for money or for a living like I like the idea of not having a person be defined by their job type of yeah. thing and yeah. so I didn't want to be like oh you're trying to paint or like yeah what do you like I didn't want so I just thought the way to talk about painting in a positive way was like oh you enjoy painting huh yeah <laughs> and she was like and then for two minutes we sat in silence but then she said no it's a nice question it's not weird I'm like then why have you ruined my mental stability now for days <laughs> Maybe you were making her really like look inward and be like, I do like to paint. And instead, <laughs> I'm just packing up your tchotchkes for your friend's birthday <laughs> at this retail job. And I just want to paint, <laughs> you know? Yeah, they were tchotchkes. That's funny. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? <laughs> so much tchotchkes for her birthday. Um, oh, are you 40? Here's 40 tchotchkes. Um <laughs> Oh, that's like for my 16th birthday. My mom got me 16 gift certificates and I like loved it. Yeah. And I loved that for you. And I think <laughs> it's a great idea. And I just love buying gifts. Um, but then, you know, when you go to buy someone a present and then you spend more money on yourself at the store, I did that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that store is dangerous for that. For sure. Um, Cause I remember we went there to buy a friend a birthday present and you were trying on clothes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But the clothes are never my style. I will never be a girl wearing clogs and like a fluffy cotton linen dress that's in all white. But every, yeah. I, I try every time <laughs> I'm in there. I'm like, I will wear a pillowy onesie and these fucking clogs from Sweden. But <laughs> um, uh, what else is going on? Well, oh you, my have, God. you have an insane story. Wait, I have an insane, insane. story that I, I really want to tell you on the podcast because I just feel like our listeners would be into this. Well, I've heard it now three times and every time <laughs> it gets more insane, not less. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't get more. It becomes more like, whoa, the earth, like the universe is nuts. Yeah. So, okay. So let me tell you guys what happened. So I don't know. Some of you may have noticed a couple weeks ago, I guest hosted my favorite murder. And, uh, this, this, I get this DM the day that that comes out from this guy who's like, Hey, this is crazy, but I just heard you on my favorite murder. And then I went to my mailbox and I pulled out this and it, he sends a photo of a letter from like the ACLU or something addressed to me and my husband at our old address in West Hollywood, because this guy lives in our old apartment, which I was like, that's crazy to hear me on a podcast. Go check your mail and find out I used to live in your apartment. Like already, that's like a weird serendipitous, crazy thing. And so I look at his bio, this guy, we've got friends in common. He's a writer, like a TV writer. So I'm like, okay, I, I feel cool talking to this guy. Like this isn't like a full stranger. Right. So we're talking and he's telling, we're talking about the building. And I had a notoriously bonkers building manager at my, uh, old building, just like harmless bonkers, just like very LA lady that I've like, I've always noticed like she was very pretty and had like a really great body, even though she was 60 years old. And I was always like, I bet she came 
came out here to like be an actress and it didn't work out. Now she's like a building manager who drives a BMW. And like, I just thought she has like a very, like a weird backstory and she smoked tons of weed, but was also the most uptight person you've ever talked to, even though she would always like love to smoke weed. And, uh, she was definitely nutty. She would talk shit to me about other tenants in the building. And I'd be like, I don't care. And so he told me, he goes, he said to me on this, uh, uh, while we're DMing, he goes, how soon did, uh, I'll call her Sandra. How soon did Sandra tell you about her mom? And I go, what? Like, uh, she told me a lot of crazy shit, but she never mentioned her mom to me. And he goes, girl in capital letters. And then he sends me three voice memos. Okay. So I immediately dig into these voice memos. And he tells me this whole story about how when he came to sign his lease, uh, she started talking shit to him about a current tenant, you know, very her, very her vibe and was talking about a tenant shooting porn in the, in the building and in the, um, sorry, in his room, in his apartment. And he was kind of like, I'm not into talking shit about that. I don't care that this tenant was shooting porn. Like that doesn't mean anything to me. Like that sex work is work, whatever. And Sandra could tell that he was not into the gossip. And so she was like, well, I'm no prude or anything. I mean, I lived through the seventies. I've done heroin. My mom was murdered by John Holmes. And I was like, what the fuck? John Holmes is the porn star that Boogie Nights was based on. And what she's talking about are the Wonderland murders, which are a notorious, horrifically violent murders that happened in Los Angeles between kind of like warring groups of drug dealers and very L.A. type, very 70s L.A. types of people. This happened in very early 80s. But do yourself a favor and Google the Wonderland murders. It is fascinating. And my old building manager's mother was murdered as part of it. I had no idea. And I knew this woman for years. Still have her phone number. I don't think there's a way I can bring it up now, but. And that you found out through a letter that arrived the day this man listened to your guest host episode of a podcast. It's so insane, isn't it? It's just magical. And I feel bad for people who don't see the magic and wonder and coincidences <laughs> of the world. Obviously, it's fucked up to call this like murder a magic thing. But yeah. like, <laughs> to be connected in these stories and how we all are bound together is pretty beautiful. It really fully informs to me how Sandra was. I mean, like the way she was in like her life, like she's a lifelong Angelino probably who had this like mother who was drug addicted and murdered. And like, it's just wild to me. Like the whole thing. Ooh, I wish, I wish there was a way I could have spoken to her about it at the time because Actually, I think that conversation would have been very uncomfortable because she's very intense, but maybe we could have smoked weed and had some fun. Who knows? Do you think you're going to ever hang out with this neighbor? I, you know what? I literally think he seems really cool and cute and, and gay. So I was like, next time I go to West Hollywood to like watch Drag Race, I might just message him and be like, want to meet up and talk about Sandra? During commercials, maybe we could do um, the worst uh, thing and try to hook up this random gay man with your um, high school friend from high school friend <laughs> and be like, well, we know two gays in West Hollywood. Yeah, what, exactly. maybe you like each other. <laughs> well, he this guy is Jed's type. OK, so maybe I will. Maybe I will set them up. I don't even know if this guy, this guy could have a, a husband for all I know. Like, I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> we can um, assume but... it might be open. No. I <laughs> uh, anyway, I know I took up a lot of today's no, intro. With that, that is amazing. I mean, I took up, a, I took up 10 minutes with a Curb Your Enthusiasm boring story. So I think a serendipitous <laughs> murder connection is better than me being like, 
am I a freak? Am I a social freak? What am I doing wrong? <laughs> um, but I, I, yeah, I, she became so uncomfortable, but. Hey, I love your curb moments. Um, should we jump into today's app? What do you think? Yeah, it's a real laugh riot, a barn burner, laughs a minute, just like a party episode of SVU. They actually all go yeah. to Cancun. It's like, yeah. I, I don't know why we waited so long to do the Cancun episode. Yeah, it's, it's, it is weird. We <laughs> All-inclusive resort. Oh my God. I hope this podcast becomes so popular. We can do an all-inclusive resort party. Oh my show. gosh. Festival. A cruise. You guys tell your friends we need to do a that's messed up cruise. I would never go on a cruise. I'm sorry. I'm anti-cruise, but I would go on a cruise that was just people that like SVU. But why are you down? Why are you demoting it? We both don't like cruises. We don't like what they do for the environment. I bring up doing an all-inclusive resort and you go, no, let's do the thing we both hate. Oh, oh, sorry. I, the <laughs> only reason I said it is because, because different shows and podcasts do cruises. Yeah. And we're going to do it at a resort You're in right. Mexico. You're so right. We're going to break the mold. You're right. You're right, Lisa. I'm a fucking follower. I was just like, well, we have to do the thing that other people have done. You're right. We're doing a fucking all inclusive. You got to fly there and then you're part of the magic and we all just party in. Where are we going? Cancun? Cancun. Cancun. Yeah. Yeah, So, um, yeah. What isn't there like a saying like, see you in Italy or some, or no, is that not (laughs) a thing? You cheers and say something like, see you in Italy. Is that not a saying like a cheers you do? Like uh, when someone will like, see you on the flip side, whatever. We'll see you guys in Mexico if we become <laughs> popular enough. <laughs> I'm raising a glass and saying, see you all in Mexico. <laughs> Let's talk charisma. You sickos asked for it and we are delivering. It is season six, episode seven. One of the scariest episodes. Let's get into it. We open on an emergency room where Benson and a doctor are engaging in a classic walk and talk. And Benson has sort of a short, short, mid-length Bob, Lisa. What would you say? It's like very 2004. If you can pull off short hair in 2004. It's very like politician V Hillary Clinton to (laughs) me. But this doctor is famous. Um, Ali Reza. Yeah. Yeah. I know I've worked with him. I don't know where, but he like wrote on SNL and inside Amy Schumer. Like he has all these comedy credits, but I feel like I've worked with him. Okay. Well, here's who he is. I was about to say the side note is the guy playing the doctor is billed as Ali Reza, who's been on a handful of episodes of SVU as this doctor. But if you dig a bit deeper because you recognize him, which I did, his full name is Ali Reza Faranakian, and he is the founder of the pit, the people's improv theater. In New York. LOL. Okay. So if you've ever walked into the pit, you know that the pit is covered in artistic renderings of Ali Faranakian. Like he literally decorated his own theater with just photos of himself and, and, and paintings of himself. So that's, he was originally, I believe like the lore of New York comedy is that he was part, like he was in with the UCB four and then he like rent and did his own thing. And that's why the people's improv theater, AKA the pit came about. We spoke to actress Lee Hubilia. She had done some stuff at the pit. We've, we've talked about it before on this podcast. So anyway, that's who he is. Um, They are talking about someone who is 30 weeks along in a pregnancy. She won't say who the father is and scarring suggests that she's been pregnant and delivered before. Um, She refuses to tell us where her parents are. And then the big reveal is that she is 12 and a half years old. Dun dun. She is going to be in the hospital for 10 weeks until the baby is born, probably because of her age and because she's had some bleeding. Um, And her name is Melanie. Olivia goes to talk to her. 
and she kind of asks her about her first baby. And she says that first baby died. My mom says he's with God now. So now we know that she has a mom and she says she's not supposed to tell anyone where her mom is. But then Olivia classic Benson really relates to her and says, if I was your mom, I'd want to be here with you. And so the girl writes down the address and she's cute. This girl's like a little redhead freckle face, like very cute 12 and a half year old girl. Um, and she tells Olivia that the baby's father is named Abraham. This is not a fellow sixth grader. She says, he's my husband. So we're already getting some ideas that this is not a great situation. Olivia shows up at a brownstone, ostensibly the address that Melanie has given her, with a couple of unis, and they knock on the door. This adorable little boy answers the door. There's three other kids standing behind him. They all have dead eyes. And then a man who has haunted my dreams for my entire life, because he was in a bunch of scary movies I watched as a kid, uh, comes to the door. He has a snake tattoo on his hand that goes up his wrist. Lisa, I'd love your thoughts. Olivia asks him to step outside. He, he goes, I can't do that. And he slams the door in her face. Olivia is about to call in backup when suddenly gunshots ring out. And that's the credits. Any thoughts on the tattoo, Lisa? Yeah, snakes are in now, but they're scary to me. And I get how they're pretty tattoos, but snakes scare me. And yeah. uh, maybe I'll get one. I don't know. Well, we do get a reference to it later, but yeah, no thoughts. <laughs> but usually if you decide to get hand tattoos or tattoos that are that visible, you are committing to a life without like um, conventional rules. You're not going <laughs> to work at a bank. You're not going to have a job. Like most even tattoo shops are hesitant to give people like hand or neck tattoos that aren't already fully covered because it does uh, dramatically change your life. So yeah. we know that this guy is off the grid. For sure. I was thinking for you, though, not a snake, but in the snake family, do you have any feelings towards Lowly Worm from the Richard Scarry books? He's very cute. I have a toy of him in a apple car with wheels. So I do. I am a fan and wow. I have the I have a it's toy. almost as if I know you. OK, um, <laughs> wait, did you know I had the toy? No, not at all. No, I think about getting him tattooed all the time. I literally thought about <laughs> it because somebody just gave Rosie a Richard Scarry book and I was like, oh, I forgot about this little guy. Wow. Oh, he's um, always in my heart. He's always on your mind. Um, okay. So now at the top of act one, Stabler's on the scene. Olivia's like fully out of breath, giving him the full rundown. Like, I don't know if she ran around the block before she did this scene with him, but she's like, okay, here's the story. Like she's giving him the whole rundown. Well, and I think she has a spidey sense of like, shit ain't good. Yeah. This is we not need to get well. in there. And there's all <laughs> these kids in the house. Yes. The house is listed as being owned by Abraham O'Fion. He's not responding to hostage negotiators. There's no phone service. There's no electricity in that house for eight years. Also not a great sign. Um, so as they're strategizing for how to get into the house with like the, um, it's not a SWAT team, but it's like the emergency response team, I, I think is what they are. They hear more shots fire off and they immediately go in and you hear over the radio, call EMS, get EMS here now. Okay. So as uh, Benson and Stabler start running towards the building, Officer Zermanio, who's played by John Ortiz, who's an actor you've seen in many, many, many things. Everything. Yeah. Like he is everything. His IMDb blew me out of the water. Like he's done so much. He staggers out of the building saying that the perp is gone and he goes, they're dead. They're all dead. So here you go, guys. This is the episode you wanted. Just kidding. We kind of did too, but I mean, it's, it's, this episode's not fun for a lot of reasons. So 
They go into the house. It's now we've got Finn and Munch and uh, Benson and Stabler. The whole gang is there. And this house is like a full cult. There's Bibles strewn about. There's drawings on the wall of scripture stuff. And then there's just like a pile of dead children. I don't know how other way to put it. There's all these, all the kids we've seen earlier are dead. I think additional children. There's like a pacifier next to a pool of blood. I mean, they are not sparing you at all on this episode. There's PJ, like you see like little bits of kids cute cutie pjs like it's just really really awful um they do close-up shots of benson's face stabler's face munch and finn like no one's doing well and olivia walks over and sees the kid who opened the door for her and her face is just like so haunted i know we use that word a lot but like she's just like oh my god i just saw this kid alive 20 minutes ago or however long ago it was so Back at the squad, we find out that Abraham has escaped via tunnels under the house. Um, and they also find out that eight years ago, he tried to gain tax exempt status for what his organization called the Church of Wisdom and Sight. So basically, we are dealing with a cult here. Cragen's like, we might be dealing with a cult. No, Cragen, it's fully 100% cult. Um, the department is providing non-optional psych support for all the officers and detectives and Stabler immediately looks huffy about it. We know how he feels about mental Which, health. I know, but it's like, you just saw a house of dead children. Can you just talk to a therapist? Yeah. Like this denial of everything. Like it is so hard to watch these old episodes. He is so annoying. I like, know. And he's very like, this is a waste of time. We're got to get to our jobs. And it's like, okay. I mean. It's a house of dead children. Yeah. Just talk to George. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Huang steps in and is like, I, I can talk to you right now. Like, let's get it over with. If speed is, is your issue, let's do it now. So Huang interviews Stabler. And we're now intercutting between Huang interviewing all four of the main cast. Uh, Stable's trying to be a tough guy. Like, uh, what do you want me to say? You know, uh, yeah, there's some dead kids. Like, he's just being a dick. Munch is kind of trying to be cynical, but Huang is like, this is actually proof that you can still be repulsed after everything you've seen in the world. You're this big conspiracy theorist. You always like, you know, have your cynical edge, but you still can be shocked. And like, this has obviously shocked you and repulsed you. Olivia looks so upset. Like, this is such a great scene for her. Like, she's such a good actor in this scene. Like, you really, truly feel like you're talking to someone who has, you're seeing someone who has experienced a profound trauma um finn's kind of trying to play it cool but he's a little bit more vulnerable he's like i ate dinner i called my kid i kind of realized that nobody's safe you know and then you think stabler's getting a little bit more into it because he says he there was one girl wearing a teddy bear shirt that his daughter has and um you're like oh, okay maybe stabler's actually giving up a little bit of um vulnerability here and then Olivia says she's afraid she won't be able to handle it. She kind of breaks down and like, we just like, I feel like we don't see these kind of moments from her anymore. Now that she's a captain, we just don't see these moments from Olivia just fully being like ah, the shit I see day in and day out on this job is just going to break me at some point. And I just was wondering if they submitted this episode for an Emmy because she did a really amazing job in this episode, in my opinion. Yeah, like tears building in the eyes, but not dropping. Yes. How do you plan that? Like just enough quivering of the lip. Like later she does some real yelling, but doesn't get too like it's she's really great. 
So then after everyone's sort of out of their psychological thing, uh, Olivia gets an ID on Abraham based off of one of his fingerprints in the house. His name is Eugene Hoff. He's got a long record for check fraud, theft, all kinds of stuff. So basically we're getting the idea this guy's just like a snake oil salesman and this religious stuff is a cover for how he steals. But it's like, if you're stealing money and doing check fraud, how do you not have money for electricity for eight years? But I guess to each their own, what you want to spend your money on. Um, Finn comes out and is like, I'm taking off. He's going to take a quick leave. He's like, sometimes you just got to step back. Like uh, you got to love Finn. He's like, I just need a moment after seeing what I saw. Liv is like, they're definitely going to send me home. I got way too emotional. And then Elliot gets called in and guess what? He gets sent home because this dude does not process shit and they even take his gun. Interesting. Benson and Munch get paired up and we continue to the rest of the episode. I guess Stabler is going to be Stabler had, I don't know, an Oz reunion to shoot that day. I don't know, but he's not there anymore. They look up an old church that he used to be a part of, which was a Pentecostal church. Uh, Hello, my husband grew up in the Pentecostal church. Very, very speaking in tongues. Very that. Very Saint-Tropez. And it's called the Christian Tabernacle of Grace. And they go and they talk to... It's not like a priest. It's like a church businessman. And he's like, I was tricked. Like, I believed this guy was super into religion and people were very drawn to him. But he preached that the serpent was Christ. And that's a little nod to the tattoo. Um, I don't really know the serpent that convinced Adam and Eve to eat the apple, I guess, is Jesus. I don't know. But now I'm remembering the coloring of his tattoo is also, I think, a poison snake. Isn't it like when it's red and black and something else that's like danger afoot? I guess. I didn't even know that about snakes. But yeah, you didn't know that's the more bright a reptile or animal, the more dangerous they are. No. Yeah. Like frogs that are like super electric blue and cool colors. It's basically like a warning to uh, any predators. Like you better stay away. I'm poisonous as fuck. Wow. Lisa. I'm so excited to know a fact that you didn't know. Nature channel shit over here. (laughs) Thank you. I didn't know. But what's crazy and hard about snakes is like there's somewhere if it's like red, black, yellow, like chill but if it's like yellow black red you're dead yeah something like wild (laughs) like know the patterns (laughs) you have to know the patterns but the most beautiful um creatures are usually the most poisonous and deadly that's interesting i'm sure there's a lot of metaphors with like woman killer movies where they (laughs) are dressed fancy or like a circle of deception starring diane neal um i miss our friends i know (laughs) (laughs) i mean her character was a femme fatale not her so this guy tells them that 10 families left the parish with eugene when he was fired eugene aka abraham i mean if my name was eugene i would change it too yeah well we have a friend who has a friend named I, it just came through my brain when i said that out loud <laughs> I have to stop just saying I hate names on this podcast because people are like, ah, I think it's fine to not like a name to say a name's not for you doesn't mean you hate the person, you know, but Gene, I've been noticing is popular. Like our friend has a friend named Gene. Uh, Amy Schumer's baby is named Gene. Like, I don't know. And and then on Mad Men, there was baby Gene a few years ago. That was a big thing. My friend's dog is named Gene. Okay, that counts. I see a lot of dogs named Rosie on Instagram, just FYI. But um, okay, so back into the story. 
Eugene takes 10 families with him when he leaves this Pentecostal church, but one family left him after a few years. So maybe you should go talk to them. Okay, now we're talking to them, Carl and Simone, Buckman and Queens. They said Abraham was magnetic. He made you feel special, even in a room full of people. And he then like they eventually were kind of like he got a little bit kooky. You know, he started telling them that the government was going to kill them and they started collecting weapons and storing food. And then he started separating the married couples and Surprise, surprise, the women slept on his floor Um, and he paid. He would talk about the sanctity of children, but he paid most attention to little girls. And at one point they caught him in their four year old's room in his underwear. And she swears he never touched her, but they peaced out that night because it sounds like it was only a matter of time. They give uh, the cops a VHS tape of Abraham. And now we are watching this him do a sermon of like. The soldiers of Satan are coming to murder you and your children and all this kind of stuff that you would expect. Well, did you watch the WeWork documentary? No, no. Okay. Well, because this reminds me of this where this couple is saying like he was magnetic, amazing. And then you watch the footage and you're like, he's a creep. Yeah. And that's how I felt with WeWork. Like everyone that was tricked by him were like, he was amazing and funny and part. And then you see him talk the whole doc and you're like, I would spit on this person if I saw him. I mean, like, I could, <laughs> it's the same with Keith Raniere. People were like, yeah. he was so magnetic. I'm like, he looks like a sad volleyball dork. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't know. I'm not getting the magnetism, but I guess maybe you have to be in the room with them. I don't know. Yeah. People would say maybe, um, they don't feel that way about Emma Chamberlain, but you do. So who knows? Well, I like Emma Chamberlain and I'm not willing (laughs) to murder for her. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not selling off my possessions and like squirreling in her backyard ready to serve. (laughs) Like I just buy some merch sometimes. You're not doing those things, Lisa? (laughs) Promise? (laughs) No, I mean, I have been an obsessive fan before. Did I bid on Anthony Kiedis's shorts on eBay? Yes, but... (laughs) Yes, you definitely have a healthy version vision. You have a, you have a healthy way to being a fan that does not cross over into culthood. And I was not suggesting that I'm just messing. When Steve-O was at a nightclub, did I wait in line, pay $20, get in to meet him? Yes. $20 to meet Steve-O doesn't sound that crazy to me. <laughs> yeah. When I opened for him, I showed him this slutty photo of me at 20 sneaking into clubs to meet him. <laughs> so tan, so blonde. Uh, but yeah. <gasps> Well, I mean, can we get that photo up on our Instagram? I would love to let everyone know what I looked like in my youth. Um, (laughs) I was a clubber, tan, highlighted psychopath. (laughs) Well, I've told the story how I had um, memberships to multiple tanning salons, so I didn't have to wait 24 hours so I could keep tanning. Like, that's... That's the vibe you're about to see. I mean, I tanned so much in college and I think I went to places that didn't even do the 24 hour thing. Like I went (laughs) to places where the packages were $5 a session. Like I was, it was crazy how tan we got. A couple years ago, I think I I tanned before I went to a wedding or something and I went to the LA tan in Skokie and the woman was like, whoa, you haven't been here since 2011. Or like she said a date (laughs) that like, she looked at me like, how old are you? But I hadn't been there in like so long, but still in the system. Still in the system. (laughs) So funny. Um, Okay. Now let's get back to to our murderous pedophile cult leader. Um, So after they're watching his little sermon, you know, 
they're all sort of just talking about him. Huang's kind of profiling and being like, a lot of cult leaders were known to have sexual relationships with children. Koresh Wait, had a 10-year-old I have bride. to go back. I'm sorry. But like oh. when the parents are talking to the detective, their daughter is making a sandwich, like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the background. And then they like tell her to go to her room. But then she leaves the fully made sandwich on the counter. Like, <laughs> who'd you make the sandwich for? Did not clock that. I guess she's not allowed to eat in her room. I don't know. I clocked it. I was like, the sandwich is made. She put the knife on the finished sandwich. And I was like, take it with you. But they had like jelly in a squeeze bottle and everything. But um, yeah, I guess when you start watching SVU uh, most of your week, you end up noticing background peanut butter. Yeah. Um, so Huang is telling them that a lot of cult leaders were known to have sexual relationships with children. Koresh had a 10 year old bride. There's another cult leader. He mentions that had like 14, you know, young victims. I, I could, I didn't catch the name of the cult of the cult leader in that one. But then in the middle of this, uh, someone calls the precinct asking if one of the boys found is a nine year old with brown hair and a scar on his leg. They're like, trace the call. Huang calls in his like special tracing credentials and is like this is agent huang uh number seven two whatever 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 put a trace on this line i didn't know that that was how it worked really but i guess but then we also see like back in the day technology because then mariska is like taping the phone call on speaker on a little tape recorder (laughs) with little tape so it is like very of the time that she has a little handheld tape recorder too yes for sure um, and she's just like begging to know, like, it was, it, was there a little boy? Was there a little boy? And he, and you know, Cragen's got her on the hook. He's like, why don't you come in? You can identify the boy yourself. You can look at all the kids and see if you know any of them or whatever. And obviously she's like, I can't tell you. She hangs up and they trace the call to a pay phone at St. Catherine's, which is the hospital where we started the episode, which is where Melanie is. So Olivia goes to see Melanie And she's like, I can't tell you anything. And, you know, Olivia kind of lays down the law with her and is like, listen, bitch, uh, sorry, I know you're 12, but Abraham is a liar. He's going to kill your mom, et cetera, et cetera. And she says something like they're in a safe place. And then the next thing we know, we're seeing a sign that says like a safer nation or something. And we're in some kind of army Navy shop or like a libertarian gift shop. I have no idea what it is, but it's some kind of shop where the guy's like, this is against my rights. And then in the back, they find a bunch of women gathered together, um, you know, cross-legged in a circle praying. And this one woman starts freaking out. Like you're the soldiers of Satan, whatever. And they find a ton of guns. They're like stockpiling guns. Um, so now that we're at the precinct with all these women, and they're all kind of wearing khaki and like various uh, loose linen blouses. And um, they are not giving up any information on Abraham. None of them have ID on them. And they don't know where he is, according to Huang. Huang's like, that's why they're scared. They don't know where he is. They're basically a flock without without their deranged shepherd. So they're they're freaking out and they're trying to just like play it cool. Then they get a call from the medical examiner. Tamara Tooney always flying in with some crazy news at a perfect time. She's got bad news for the cops. Abraham is not the one who killed the kids. The oldest victim is around 20 years old. We've never seen her. We we don't know who this person is, but she's the oldest victim. She's 20 years old. Her wounds are self-inflicted. Her prints are the only prints on the gun, and she has gunshot residue all over her hands. So Munch is like, Abraham is still responsible. He had total control over all of them. And Warner also discovers that all of these kids have the same father except for the shooter. So basically, 
he's an incestuous pedophile. Like, and if you shoot all your kids, no one can testify to that. Um, except for Melanie. So now it's very, very important that we get in touch. We, we make sure uh, Melanie is safe and that we, she can testify. Obviously Liv gets to the hospital and she's gone. And they say her dad took her home. Uh Oh, that's not her dad. Yeah. And it's like, even if that is her dad or whatever version of a dad that is, it's a 12 year old who's pregnant. So the dad's not doing a good job. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Maybe don't release her. Wait, Andy's checking her out of a hotel, of a hospital when she's supposed to be on bed rest until she delivers. What's he saying? I'm going to take her home and do a home birth. Like I'm surprised he was even allowed to discharge her. I guess against medical advice. Um, so at the squad, they are listening to one woman named Sarah talk to one of the cops and they they recognize her voice from the call, which Olivia, yes, does have on a tiny handheld recorder. And um, when she came in, she has a piece of paper with numbers in her pocket and she won't say what the numbers are. She does admit to being Melanie's mother. Eventually, they, they're like, we know you're Melanie's mom. And she says that Melanie's father abandoned them when Melanie was a baby. And then Olivia goes fucking off on her, like blames her for the whole thing, for all the kids being killed. She's screaming at her. It's like, it's honestly some of Benson's best yelling. Oh, yeah. This scene is powerful as fuck. She, yeah. I mean, she also she looks stunning, um, gorgeous in every way. Incredible acting. Like sometimes with the Stan Marishka accounts, I'm like, OK, you guys are a little yeah, creepy yeah, yeah. and you need to relax. And then you see a scene like this and you're like, OK, are you our cult leader? Because yeah. I will dr- <laughs> I will drop anything and do anything you need. Like I will right. sell everything in my apartment to keep you safe. Like she just kills it. And like she just like to be able to scream and still look so beautiful, like while you're screaming with anger. Yeah. And there's like a upper lip sweat. And I'm like, OK, so now you're making upper lip sweat look good, too. <laughs> um, so you think that Olivia's going to break her with this beautiful screaming she's doing. But unfortunately, Sarah is fully brainwashed and is like, this is a test and I will not be tempted. Typical cult shit. Um, Munch finds out that the numbers on the piece of paper in her pocket are bank account numbers. And someone has recently cleared them all out. And it's about $600,000. And a lot of these are counterfeit checks from large corporations, which are easier to counterfeit because large corporations don't like, you know, keep such track of like every penny, like the way I guess like a small business would do. So he does all of his bogus banking in one place. And they're like, he must have an inside guy there. So I love this detail. They go to the bank and when they show up, this fucking loser guy who you can tell is, is Abraham's guy on the inside is talking to trying to romance some lady on the phone. And he goes, we could go someplace special. I don't know. Go to Tampa. Like, who are you? That Tampa is the place you're trying to bring. No offense to anybody from Tampa. I've spent a lot of time there. I have family in Sarasota. I fly into Tampa all the time. It's just not the place that you're trying to like romance whisk a woman off to okay wait isn't that where real housewives of atlanta drew's husband went to tampa yeah, he went to tampa admit where he went he went to tampa it's the stripper capital in the world or in america or something like strip club capital it's of the world. big strip club territory for i sure. keep saying world but i'm sure there's another country that has more strip clubs than what do tampa. you think i feel like a U- the u.s has the market cornered on strip clubs i don't know but hannah will type and find out number one <laughs> number one strip club most, it's gonna be some giant it's gonna be be like Liechtenstein well, for the U.S. It's Portland. Yeah, Portland oh, has the more, most wow. strip clubs. 
They have 54 in Portland. That doesn't feel like that right. 54 is my lucky number. So Portland beats Tampa. Wow. And Atlanta. I mean, I feel like Atlanta has a lot mm, of strip clubs. I mean, yeah. like there's a lot. I, I'm, I'm, but I've always known my dad told me that, which is sad. My dad told me Portland was the strip club capital. So it's always stuck in my head. Well, they're also uh, full naked in Portland. Oh, they go full. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a full nude type of bitch. As we <laughs> learned from watching Zola, me and Lisa went to, I was about to say Zola. Zola. They go to Tampa. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I just think it's funny that this guy's about to be like somewhere special like Tampa. So they confront him about Abraham. They're like, look, the FBI's involved. Just like get, you're already bucked. So just don't even try it with us. Um, and he's like, okay, Abraham's coming in later today. He's closing out one last account. It has more money in it than all of them. I feel like this next scene is very reminiscent of fault, even though fault is season seven, right? It's just a similar kind of scene. It's like asking a civilian to kind of like play a role to lure a guy in to get money. And then there's like a whole neck slitting thing, even though it happens to Olivia in the fault one. And the guy, you know, it's just to me, I was getting a lot of fault echoes in this, even though wow. this episode came first. But it's also this bank guy is like, it's like, it's like, what is your loyalty to this guy? Just turn him over to the FBI. Like, it felt like he was uh, like struggling to do this. Maybe it was just nerves. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe he thought he was going to kill him um but not never as bad as that fucking guy from fault who worked at the check cashing place fuck that guy forever um so reggie is the name of the bank teller guy like uh abraham walks in and reggie's immediately like sweating through the glass you can tell he's very nervous he's fucking it up munch is like reggie's blowing this we're blown blah 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 Cragen pulls his gun. All these people pull guns. Abraham's totally cornered. He pulls out a knife and says like into the darkness or something like that. I don't remember. I didn't write down the actual quote, but it's some kind of like, you know, faux religious bullshit. Almost slits his own throat. And then Olivia jumps on him out of nowhere to stop it. And at the top of act four, we've got more. I, I swear they must have nominated her for an Emmy for this episode. We should look it up because there's so many good scenes. This is another great scene. She's interviewing Abraham by herself. Okay. She's not, there's no stabler tag tag team. She's alone one-on-one -on -one with this freaky ass cult leader. And he tries to turn the tables on her. Like, how can you invite all this depravity of your job into your mind, your body, your soul? It's going to eat you like a cancer. Like, why is this so important to you? Are you, have you been raped? Like, you know, he's trying to, trying to get to well, her. It's also like, didn't you just see a bunch of dead children? Like uh, you are creating the things I cut yeah. this out this makes no sense i'm just in a rage <laughs> I, I would actually counter and say do not cut this out um so olivia is speaking to him but the way that they're shooting it it almost looks like she's doing like a monologue like into the camera and she's basically like telling abraham like she has his number and he's not gonna fucking get in her head like he, and she's like you're pathetic like you actually believe your own hype you've conned yourself and then she kind of walks out of the room and he does have a look on his face like fuck this woman like knows what i'm up to or whatever and uh back behind the one-way glass unfortunately novak is like without melanie's testimony we don't have a case a reminder he has moved melanie somewhere and we do not know where she is after he took her out of the hospital so a lawyer shows up and says that the, somehow this guy, this fucking cult leader who hasn't had electricity in eight years, but I guess does have $600,000 of stolen money, was able to get like a hotshot lawyer because this guy shows up and kind of knows what's up. And he's like, 
you're never going to get him on statutory rape because these it's only the Emmy's estimation of how old this girl is. So that's not concrete enough for any judge that'll rule out statutory rape. And without that, you're not going to get incest. And I, I still think you'd get all this with DNA. So I'm a little bit confused how the lawyer comes in just like bing, bang, bong and like it's done. But, and he's like, and your murderer killed herself. So Casey's like, we're, pretty screwed like this guy's right i hate to say it but this guy's right like we don't really have a case without melanie and muncher cragen says what about manson and that's what originally i thought of i was like manson went to jail and he never killed anybody specifically as far as i know and they're like manson had followers who testified so that's the problem that's why we need melanie melanie what a popular girl everyone wants a piece of her exactly the account that Abraham was trying to close out at this bank actually has over a million dollars in it. And it was under the name of John Kramer in Englewood, New Jersey. Now they go and they talk to some private investigator who investigated uh, his disappearance. So it turns out this guy, John Kramer vanished with his wife and two-year-old daughter named Melanie 10 years earlier. So we're starting to get a picture here. We find out that uh, from this private investigator who the wife's parents had hired to find her and the family because they all just disappeared. We find out from him that Melanie has a trust fund with $2 million in it that she gets when she turns 21 or when she, when she has a baby, whichever one comes first. The last trace of John that this investigator found was buying construction materials on his credit card that his mom paid for, I guess, 10 years ago. Uh, Munch remembers that there had been a noise complaint against Abraham's brownstone from people doing middle of the night construction. So we searched that house up to up top of to bottom, they say, but we didn't check the walls. So now we're back at the house. We've got a lady with a blueprint and she's like, we're basically looking for a room that shouldn't be there. They find this wall basically attached to a bathroom. And they're like, this is, this is supposed to be the exterior wall of the house. Like this isn't right. They x-ray it. They see a skeletal hand. They cut open the wall and they find skull and bones sitting in a pile of kitty litter to hide the scent. This is one of my favorite SVU things is like a body behind the wall. Yeah. And they do it a few times. Yeah. I do love when they find, I, I like it. It's fucked up, but I like it. It is interesting because we both lived in New York. There's only so many places you can hide a fucking body in New York. We are not in Iowa where we can go dump, bury a body in a cornfield or the desert or any of that shit. Like New York is a very densely populated tight place we don't have a lot of space so if you want to try to get rid of a body it's like there's not that many options you know like people try throwing bodies in the river but they always float to the surface so if you want a body where you can keep an eye on it a la dorian Corey in fucking uh paris's burning documentary this uh drag performer who killed a john they believe but probably was attacked by the john and killed in self-defense kept the, the body in a trunk in her closet for years until it mummified and it was only found when she when she died but this isn't oh because they're party monster that movie with macaulay culkin that's based on james st james and all this weird stuff there was a body hidden i don't know if that's the same story no but they they killed like a random person and kept him in a trunk oh okay okay so I'm saying trunks, walls, we got to make, we got to improvise in New York if you're going to try to hide a body. And um, so where and I guess, is the body? Where is the body? And I guess some people feel better knowing where bodies are rather than just like ditching it and like living with the paranoia of somebody finding it. Well, and it's like the ultimate trophy too. Yeah. Like you're not even keeping a little bracelet. You're keeping right. If you're like a serial, the body. Like, yeah. 
So this guy still has his wallet in his pants. It's literally like bones in a pair of jeans. And like he has a wallet. I love the way you say bones. I can hear you say bones (laughs) all day long. Oh, my God. Thank you. Um, So they pull out his bank card and it is John Kramer. Okay, so now this whole picture is starting to come together that Abraham killed this man to get to his wife and child. We find out also that the wife, uh, her name is Cindy. So she goes by Sarah in in the cult, but her name is Cindy in in, uh, her before life. They show Sarah slash Cindy the wallet. And they show her pictures of this dead body. This is the bones. Um, They tell her, this is your husband. He was shot in the back of the head and he was buried in the wall of your house. And she's like, this isn't true. He left us. He fell in love with another woman. This is what Abraham told me. I believe Abraham. And then Olivia's got the smoking gun. She just sort of flicks a little baggie with a wedding ring in it at her and goes, he was wearing it when he died. So then the woman is really starting to understand. I've been completely fleeced and I've allowed my daughter to be impregnated by a cult leader. So Olivia definitely lets her feel the guilt and says, where's Melanie? He's going to take her money and then he's going to kill her once she has this baby. The lawyer's like, what's in it for her? And the mom's just like, she's up north in a warehouse. What's in it for her? Not a dead daughter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So true. So now we're at this warehouse. They find Melanie. She's in this little like storeroom on like a blow up bed or whatever. And it's Benson and officers Romano from the earlier part of the episode. They go into the um, room. They're like, Melanie, we're here to get you out of here. And then he uh, Abraham slash Eugene comes back. They have him up against the wall and he's encouraging Melanie. Like, see, I told you they were going to come for us. Like, you got to stop them. You got to stop them. Suddenly she uh, officers Romano gets shot in the leg and we wheel around and see that Melanie, this cute little 12 year old girl with freckles is like holding a gun and she has just shot this cop in the leg. Well, and this is kind of like a callback to what happened in the house where it's like he obviously makes women do the crime and all the work too. Right. You know, he's not going to get his fingerprints on that gun. He'd rather give it to this pregnant 12 year old. Right. And he obviously gave it to her earlier and was like, if anyone comes in, shoot them and whatever. So he's basically. I wonder if people run up to Jeff Kober in the streets and go, how dare you? Like, I wonder (laughs) if people don't know. (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, So then more shades of fault to me where there's that time, there's that standoff where it's like, shoot him, Livia. Oh, you're going to shoot me, Livia? What are you going to do? You know? So there's that whole thing that happens here where both Eugene slash Abraham and Olivia are screaming things at Melanie being like, I'm here to help you. No, I'm your father. I'm your I'm your husband, whatever. Like they're both going at it, like screaming at the same time and stressing her out. And we're upping the tension and upping the tension. We don't know what's going to happen. And, um, Abraham says they're afraid of me because I am greater than man and I am greater than God. And they're afraid of what I can do. And then in that moment, a shot rings out and Abraham is shot and Melanie has shot Abraham and Benson goes to her. They hug and she's uh, Melanie's crying in her arms. And she's like, that was a lie. He said he was greater than God, but nobody is. So in a way, religion kind of saved the day here in a weird way. Um, and it's good that she's going to have that $2 million trust fund to pay for her lifetime of therapy. And that is the end of charisma. Thanks so much, Kara. Um, and stay tuned for the real life horrors. As we say, get ready to get sad. <laughs> <sighs> Thank you.
So um, this is based on the case of Marcus Wesson. And of course, like there's vibes of Dave Koresh and like Jim Jones and all that. But those are such giant, well-known cases that I thought I would focus on the Marcus Wesson case. And it's like fully 100 percent, unfortunately, exactly what happened. Like it it's it's this is really sad it is upsetting it did take a lot out of me and um the guy is super super scary and all the children are very very cute beautiful children so uh this case of marcus wesson um is in fresno california and he has one of my worst qualities um phys- i hate matted dreads <laughs> like if you're gonna have dreads take care of that i just like there's not you know when you just see one big clumped out dread with someone and you're like i don't want to be near you that's how you feel. i just really don't like dirty dreads so he has dirty dreads um and marcus is the leader of an incestual cult founded on the beliefs of vampires and that he was god so it's a very like vampire christian situation because it's like jesus gave up his blood and that's like what vampires do so okay it's pretty strange um and they also could have been considered seventh day adventists as well but then it morphed into this weird vampire situation and the prosecutors described him as a domineering patriarch who controlled his family with religious teachings and sexual abuse so Pretty close to the truth. Um, He had a wife named Elizabeth who he met when she was eight years old. Um, So Elizabeth was his girlfriend's daughter. So like he came home from the army and he moved in with this older woman named Rosemary Solorio. You're Italian. Does that sound Italian? Yeah. uh, Yeah, it could be. It makes me want pizza. Okay, So... (laughs) Rosemary Solario um, is this older woman that he moved in with when he came home from the army and she had several children from a previous relationship. She had a kid with Marcus, um, but then he straightened on to this eight year old daughter. So he basically said, like, she's meant for me and you I own you. And that was that. And the mom was like, "Okay, cool, but you can't get married till she's a teenager. And so basically, like, let her boyfriend date her eight year old daughter. And um, they spoke. I've watched an interview with the daughter as like a grown woman. And she was just like, I believed everything he said and thought that the Lord like picked me to be with him. So she felt like special that she was chosen to be with this person, even if like things sucked. She was like, I'm so special. God chose me. So in 1974, when she was 14 and he was 27, they got married. And that was the mother Rosemary's rule. Like you have to wait to get married. It's so fucking sick. Um, She gave birth, Elizabeth, to 11 children with Wesson uh, from the ages of 14 to 26. Uh, One died as an infant, but she had like 10 children with this man. Um, And incest was a big part of their religion and life. Um, In quotes, like he would say, one produces the seed of perfection of oneself. Um, so legit, his children slash grandchildren have been fa- had been fathered with his daughters and nieces. So very incestual cult. Um, he also moved the family around a lot. Like they lived in tents, boats, shacks, trailers, a school bus for a while, and various houses. And like 
you know, when they lived on the boat, no electricity or running water. And he made the entire family live below deck. So no one would see him for 12 years. They lived in an army tent. Um, and then finally purchased this old office building and that's where they lived. And their life was very much welfare, food stamps. He made children go dumpster diving while he ate fast food and did whatever he wanted. When he was arrested, he was 57 years old and weighed over 300 pounds. So these children are dumpster diving and on food stamps and barely have enough food. And he's just constantly eating fast food all the time. Oh my God. Um, they did not go to school, obviously. Um, he took care of their education. Yeah, safe to say he's a proponent of homeschooling, I would say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and his lessons were mostly Bible studies that were based on the fact that he was God and that Jesus Christ was a vampire. Okay. Which could be a funny show. You know, that's what sucks <laughs> about all this. Jesus Christ vampire is pretty fun. Um, but... He didn't make it fun. And then what sins lessons that also sounds like a fun, like pretzel school, you know, like oh, there's just lessons, Ugh, but not that fun of lessons. Um, a lot of the lessons were just sexual technique. Like that was a big part of the girls curriculum was learning sexual technique. And they were also, um, in charge of washing his dreads and like scratching his head and armpits and stuff for him. Like they had to, they had to take care of him physically. Um, psychiatrist Edward Hallowell described the cult as being run on fear as a tool for manipulation. Um, and this tactic forced the children to act against their own self-interest. Um, keeping the family together was the most important thing and more important than life itself was staying together as a family. And he taught them that the police were the devil in disguise and that suicide was an OK way to escape them. This is upsetting. He purchased caskets months before this mass murder. So he had caskets ready for everyone in the house, like in a room, because that's part of the lesson where it's like death over separation. So it didn't seem like this horrible thing. I don't know. But he had caskets ready for everybody. Um, one of the boys, Serafino explained like the life was terrible um he was one of the survivors uh one of the boys but he said punishments would last up to 30 days it would be like um you know 63 hits a day 21 in the morning and then 21 in the afternoon 21 in the evening for like days on end and some of the girls in the house said like they would have to remind him of their punishments because he would forget so you would have to go to him and be like you forgot to whip me today 21 times like you had to constantly oh remind God. him to beat you but that's how like culty this really was and like Serafino said the the punishment of getting beat 30 days was because he stole a spoonful of peanut butter mm. and that reminds me of Nick's Marie Brown case yeah. where it's like just such small things and such violent fucking consequences and it's just really really yeah. sad so um, awful he would beat them with bats, electrical cords, and like even worse stuff that I really don't need to be mentioning. But you can imagine it um, sucked. And like what sucks on top of it all is the children didn't know any better. They had no access to the outside world and were born into the cult. So they didn't know what life should have looked like. Um, Kiani, one of the girls, said that Wesson started raping her at age eight and she thought it was OK. Like that's all she knew. And then but one of the kids, Gypsy, said she knew it felt wrong. 
And when they were old enough to work, they were expected to, and they had to hand over all of their wages to Marcus. Um, and he, of course, refused to work and was on welfare. And then everyone else, when they hit the work, the age of work, had to go work. Um, this guy had total control over his family. Obviously, you guys get that. Um, even when they were allowed to have jobs out of the house, nobody said anything to anybody. No one said anything to coworkers or to the cops. And I mean, they also just had such hatred for law enforcement and like one of his favorite celebrities, David Koresh. And he fucking loved David Koresh. Oh my God. The surviving boys said that like they would watch him on TV and he'd be like, that's my brother. Like that's like me and him. Um, he had a fascination and kinship with the, this, you know, fellow cult leader. And he thought they were both children for the Lord. And they both like believed that they were both making children for the Lord. And they both just had a lot of similarities and he looked up to him. He made a suicide pact that if any government official ever tried to take the kids away or split up the family, that the mothers were to kill their children and themselves and held monthly meetings to discuss the details of the plan. So they had like fire drills, but for um, the suicide pact, which in essence is just to like cover his own tracks, really. Right. Like, I mean, he doesn't believe this shit. So he's basically just like we all if the cops come in, we all have to die so that like I don't get in trouble. Mm hmm. He's truly one of the scariest people I've ever seen. We really, um, we research a lot of horrific crimes, but like when you look into his eyes, it's like a shark or a crocodile. Like there's nothing there. It's really no soul in those eyes. Yeah. Um, so what happened on this day of March 12th, 2004, um, is when everything came together. And And that is coincidentally like months before this episode of SVU. So it's definitely based on this. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what happened on March in the, this March 20, March 2004 was police officials said that in the afternoon, the officers were called to the house for a child custody dispute. They say as they arrived, two women were outside the house that and they were there to pick up their kids. But Marcus would not let them in. And these two women were two nieces that ran away. Um, and then they returned to take their babies with them. So that's Ruby Ortiz and Sofina Solario were the nieces that um, left. And he let them leave, but said they had to leave the, their own children behind. But they were so desperate to get out of there. They agreed. They realized that this isn't good. And like they were not happy with their lives and they had to get out of there. Um, And so then so they escaped, leaving their children behind. But then once they got adjusted to the world outside and started getting like they started to understand what he had done to them and everything that they had been through. And they got, they were like, fuck, he's doing this to the rest of our family. We have to help. So, like I said, March 12th, 2004. They gathered several relatives for support and went back to the home to rescue their children. Wesson, like I said, refused to let them in. And the rest of the family was calling, like yelling at them, Judas, whores, commanding them to bow down to your master. So everyone in the home still fully in, like in his grip. And so they're screaming horrific things at these women that are just trying to save their children. Um, And they were in a really tough situation. Like they couldn't get to their kids, but then they also knew about the suicide pact. So if the cops or authorities showed up, they knew what could happen. So they're really in a fucked up situation where they need help of authorities or like a greater power to get these children. But like are scared of the results, but also I can't, I can't imagine what these people are going through. 
So when the police arrived, they the women are trying to communicate to the cops like, no, they're in danger. He will hurt these children. Please help them. And the cops didn't listen to the warnings and didn't consider they had enough evidence to force enter the house. So they arrive and these women are pleading with the police officers like you need to enter the home and get our children out of there. They are in grave danger. And the cops are like, yo, we don't have enough evidence for a warrant and didn't enter. Um, Weston did meet the police at the door and told them to like wait and he'd be right back and disappeared back into the house. They allowed it at first. Weston, I guess, told the officers that he would release the children, but then instead ran into this bedroom and locked the door and then shots rang out that the cops deny they heard even though neighbors heard them what so oh my god when he appeared again he was covered fully in blood and nine of the children were dead um there was an hour-long standoff before he surrendered um when the officers entered the home they found a pile of bodies in one room and 10 coffins in different sizes like in another room um the victims were six females three males ranging from the age of one to 24 (gasps) yeah and they were all related and all the children were shot in the head it's awful so police described weston as very calm during his arrest after emerging blood covered from his home Like, just, I guess he was chill as fuck. Um, His bail was set at $9 million. Uh, Wesson did not take the stand at his trial, which is probably uh, a good choice by the defense. Like, he's the scariest person ever. Um, And that trial started June 2005. His attorneys tried to say the kids killed themselves or the older daughter did it. And it's like, go fuck yourself. Um, And nobody bought it. Even like we talked about in the episode, like even if he didn't pull the trigger, the fucker is guilty. Um, And he was found guilty of nine counts of murder and 14 counts of rape and molestation. So on June 27th, 2005, he was sentenced to 102 years of rape for rape and molestation charges. And then for the murder of his children and grandchildren, children he received the death penalty and he's never eligible for parole um and then for the governor there's a memoriatorium or whatever on the death penalty in california so he's in san quentin on death row right now but we don't know what will happen but i am against the death penalty but i'm just like light yeah. this motherfucker up um <laughs> this is considered the worst mass murder in fresno history and the cops who found the pile of uh bodies were so traumatized they all had to seek counseling no stablers in the bunch uh-huh. they were all really fucking traumatized and what is twisted is when he was first arrested a number of the indoctrinated kids were defending him like yeah. one of the kids met with a reporter and was like uh kept trying to clear his father's name and saying that he's the best dad ever. I watched the footage of the kids like kind of crying and being like, no, he's the best dad we could have ever had. Like they just truly were fully brainwashed. Um, And it took years of deprogramming and separation from him that any of them finally realized what they had all been through. And there's, there are interviews with like the children and they're really upset like when they're talking about it even though they're out of it it was like kind of shame a little bit too like one of the sons said i believed he was god until he was i was 19 years old like 
you know, I, yeah. I, I just can't imagine the weight of all this. Um, and so I did find an update as of August 2020 of where all the like nieces, nephews and children are. Um, three of his sons were finally able to say their dad was a psychotic, narcissistic and a deluded person. Um, and then Alicia Sofios is a reporter who interviewed Serafino, who's one of the sons. And she said she like couldn't just sit and watch this. And she did break journalism rules. Um, and like, I guess there's a rule in journalism. You cannot become part of the story, but she could not just stand by and watch. So she invited three of the women to live with her. So Elizabeth Gypsy and Kiana, like they had never been to school, didn't have any money, nothing. So she, so the four women lived in an apartment together. Um, Gypsy and Kiana all have children of their own now. Serafina, one of the sons, is married and has three children. And Alicia Sofios wrote a book about the family, if you want to know more. And it's called Where Hope Begins. Damn. And that's kind of it. And um, damn, it's damn, damn. just sad. And it's scary to think like this could be happening to someone right now. Yeah. Not to leave everyone on a terrible, terrible note, but it's just like off the grid. Like you said, I don't even think it's only money about no electricity in the episode or with him. It's also like you can't trace them. You can't track it. You don't know where who's there, how many people are living there. Um, like, yeah, I just wonder what was going through his mind when he went into that bedroom and killed all those kids, because it's like, if you're not going to get all of them, you're still going to be implicated and he didn't take his own life. So it's like, what did you think was going to happen? The cops are at your front door. What did you think was going to happen? Like those kids didn't have to die. No, it's just so, I mean, he, maybe he thought he was sending them to heaven or whatever. If he believed his own religion. No, I think he's just like an evil, evil person. Yeah. I don't know. Ugh. I have no idea. And then I was really shocked that we don't know more about this case because it is so heinous and horrific um, and terrible. But I, in the same area during the same time, Scott Peterson's trial was happening. Oh. And so because of that that case got so much attention, it seems like this one kind of got swept under the rug. And this also brings up what SVU covers a lot and hopefully this changes, but these victims were black. And I just wonder if this family being black kind of fucked with the news coverage and media and attention that it got because Lacey was like this all American pregnant girl, beautiful but, white woman. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, that makes it so sad that like that. I'm so surprised I don't know about this case. And that's totally why. Wow. Yeah, it's a black family. And so no one cared. I don't know. But it does seem like one of the most horrific crimes I've ever looked at. So it it is shocking that it's not anywhere at all. It's a bummer. Ugh. But it sucks that this wasn't um, a bigger case because maybe those ch the children could have gotten more funds or support help yeah. like i don't know how much support they had without this journalist i'm gonna have to read this book if i can uh, manage being sad for a long time well we've done it charisma we've done it <laughs> we made it through and now we have a guest as always and it's a good one <laughs> All right.
right, you guys, I am beyond psyched for this interview because this is someone who has truly haunted me in his work since I was a child. And we talk about it in the interview, but you guys might know him from shows like China Beach or Sons of Anarchy. He's been on The Walking Dead and a little movie called The First Power that traumatized me as a child. He was recently nominated for a daytime Emmy for his portrayal of Cyrus Renault on General Hospital. But you guys know him as the terrifying Abraham on this week's episode of Charisma. Check out our interview with Mr. Jeff Kober. This is one of our most requested episodes with all of our listeners. And we kept denying them. We're like, it's too scary. It's too sad. We refuse. <laughs> and then um, we're obviously when we found out we got to talk to you, we had to do it. Um, and do you feel like our listeners need help? Uh, ab- absolutely. It's a horrifying episode. And uh, I, I just saw it for the first time this week. I, I had never watched it before. And do you not watch any of your work or just when you're playing someone really scary? I, I don't watch a lot of my work. I, every once in a while I do. Uh, but it, it's, you know, hell could be watching yourself on video your whole life. Here's your whole <laughs> life on video. Sit and watch. Um, and uh, but this one, it, I, I sat down with my family to watch it. Oh and God. when I saw how hor- horrifying this person was, I had to leave the room. It was it was too much. Oh my god. So how do you prep for a role like that? Well, I I this the, I learned something extraordinary on this uh, uh on this job uh, which is the situation adds the horror. I played it as a man of god. Mm. I was really trying to be helpful to Marishka when I was she was interviewing me but I was actually interviewing her. Yeah. And I thought that I was, you know, I was uh, I was speaking the words of of Jesus. And uh, really trying to help people out, though there were how, 24 children killed. And, Something, uh, some a bad number of, de- of dead <laughs> children, for sure. Um, <laughs> do you think he's the worst character you've ever played or have there been worse? Um, oh, let's see. Well, I, I played <laughs> I played a Richard Ramirez type character in The First Power. Yes. Um, and if I could jump in here right now and just say that that's a movie I saw you in when I was 10 years old. And I'm sorry. Um, I was truly terrified by you for a very long time. <laughs> that was horrifying. That was that guy was sick. This... And we talked to Lou Diamond Phillips about you also. Oh, because we brought up that movie. Lou, uh, we had fun. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> Yeah, that movie is, I think I was just like, it was on like HBO or something when I was 10 and my brother Ugh. and I thought we would be edgy and watch it. And I just was like, thought you were so, so scary in it. So you're, you've always been a great actor in my mind because you've terrified me as a child, but now so ple- such a pleasure to be talking to you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually, we shot that while Richard Ramirez was on trial. I actually went to his trial oh, and wow. saw him. That was extraordinary because the banality of evil was so amazing. He was like, yeah, they got me. Yeah. He had no conception of what it was he'd done. What was the vibe in that courtroom? Well, it was it, courtrooms are a lot uh, more boring than they are on SVU. Um, <laughs> And they were just going through a lot of procedural stuff. But he every time the door opened, he would spin around to see who walked into the room. And one time he spun around and I was sitting in the back row and our eyes locked for a moment. And it was like something you'll never be able to unsee. 
were could you tell his eyes had like no soul? Like were his eyes different than other people you look at? Yes, there was no soul. Uh, it was or the soul was buried so deep in him that it had never made it to his eyes. Wow. Yeah. So did you you go to the trial to research for the movie? Yeah, wow. yeah. I was I, I was very much into research at that time in my life, and I, I overdid it on that movie. I have to say. Um, we shot in a Catholic church on Sunset Boulevard, and they had me standing on the altar making a, you know, a crucifix uh, gesture and saying something about come and get me buddy boy or whatever. And the priest came along and he hadn't been inside the church when we were in there. He said, hope you're not doing anything to bring down the wrath of God on us. <laughs> <laughs> of course we were. <laughs> Oh my um, God, that's so funny. And so we've talked to Neil Bear a couple times. He's one of our regular fave guests. And we saw that you guys worked together in China Beach. And was this how you SVU came about? Was I'm assuming it was an offer only, like, right? No, no, I I, I read for it, I think. No I think, way. I think so. Really? Yeah, I think so. I you know what? It's it's only that was almost 20 years ago. I know, I know. It's okay if you don't remember stuff. And I don't even smoke pot anymore. But I, I, <laughs> I, I actually don't. It might have been an offer. Could have been. We just were, we were just putting, the, we put the pieces together when we saw that you had done China Beach. We thought maybe Neil Bear brought you in or something. It's, it's, it's possible. I'd have to ask someone with a better memory than, than I. <laughs> we could ask Neil because he have, remembers everything. Okay. <laughs> And then one of the other shocking things besides the murder in the episode is like a pregnant young child. And so how was it like working with a kid with the pregnant belly, the gun, you're evil? Like, what's that process like? Well, again, you you have to play it like it's a love story. Mm. And, you know, people say she was 12. I'd say 12 and a half. Um, <laughs> And again, God told me to do it. So uh, I, it was, it, she was the right person for the job. You know, you you have to ignore the fact because this character was not horrified by what he was doing. Right. He was doing what he thought was right. Yeah. You know, she, she even says that in the, in the interview, she says, you know, the really sad thing is you've bought your own hype, you know, and so, yeah, he was he was not just a scam artist. He was a, a, a scam artist because God told him he needed money. That face that you make when she says that to you is like the best acting ever. It was uh, <laughs> a real it was a great face. I, I, I think she won an Emmy for that episode. Oh, my God. I I literally kept saying, did Marishka get nominated for an Emmy for this episode? Because I just thought she was so great in that episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she, you know, we 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 talked because uh, I did my half of the interrogation first because of just camera angles. And and then we talked about what she should do. She said, I never get to do uh, scenes like this. I'm always just saying, you know, if you think of anything, call me and hands people a card. And 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 so it, to have actual interaction back and forth with another actor was just so exciting for her based on what she'd been doing up to that point. So we had a lot of fun there. Um, any wow. other stories from the set and your experience that you feel our listeners would be thrilled to hear about? We shot that 
It was springtime in New York. Um, everyone seemed to be very tired and wanted to go home. Okay. Um, <laughs> and and they actually sent uh, iced tea and uh, and Chris Maloney. They in the in the story they get sent home. Or yeah. uh, Ice T decides to go home. We did a movie together too, Ice T and I. Another one uh, was it Tank Girl or no? That's right. Oh, yeah, he's <laughs> a kangaroo. What did that? Someone just sent us that. I have never seen that, and I have to watch that. I can't wait to watch him be a kangaroo. Yeah, both of us were kangaroos. Yeah. Oh, you were a kangaroo, <laughs> kangaroo too? Oh, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my God. And and we'd all we all one of the things about being a kangaroo was that we remet, we were engineered uh kangaroos and we you're able to remember who what your past life was and and he was a cop and i was a a dog but i was a really good dog so i got to move up to kangaroo in this life so <laughs> and he wow. was a bad guy so he moved down to kangaroo no he was uh he was a cop and now he was which was just funny because there was iced tea and cop killer and all that yeah. <laughs> um no he was a good guy we were we were heroes we were the hero kangaroos Wow. Did it, and you guys, you remembered each other on set. Did you reminisce about your kangaroo days? Not much because we, we didn't actually act together. All my stuff was with Mariska. You know, we yeah. said hello. I think that was it. Do you remember this scene where she jumps on your back when you're about to slit your own throat? It, it, that was that was actually surprising to me. I didn't remember that scene at all. Um, <laughs> I, I remembered so much the stuff in the interrogation scene and the the scene where the the little girl shot me. And I remember one of the one of the takes on that. I, I don't know. I it was, it was horrible. I think, uh, but I, I called her a little bitch for shooting me. You <laughs> bitch. <laughs> All in good fun. Of course. So then when you're offset, do you have to be like extra nice to her when you're not in action? Like, do people explain? I that? had no, it was, it was so interesting because I had no problem being nice in that, in, in that job because I just didn't think of myself as a bad guy. And uh, in watching it, I was a little horrified for the little girl. Yeah. Like, oh my God, what they put her through. I looked her up on IMDb. I don't think she's worked since 2006 or something. Yeah. A lot of the kids in the show sometimes like either so good. And then we look them up and they've quit acting and we're like, what a waste. Um, I wanted to ask, like, do you, I mean, did, I know this came out a while ago, but like, do you ever get recognized for this role or for like other roles where you play like these terrifying characters? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Cause I was going to say, I, when we were obviously researching you for this, I watched all the seasons of Sons of Anarchy. I've seen every episode of Sons of Anarchy. I did not clock that you were that character because oh. you just are like not, you're not like evil in that show. No, I'm you know? just bad. You're just like a bad, you're a regular bad guy. You're regular not as, guy, you're not as yeah. terrifying. You're more politically a politician bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, fun. I mean, you, but it speaks to your, you know, ability as an actor to go in and out of these different roles, because I, I thought maybe you just played like terrifying, creepy roles, but you really do many other things. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> not, not just a creep. Not just totally, not just, not just the guy who scared me to when I was 10. Now the one thing uh, personally that was going on for me at that time was uh, I had just learned how to properly meditate a couple of months before we shot that. Oh. And that was really helpful in terms of letting it go, you know, when when I was offset and 
I remember it was a beautiful springtime in New York and uh, like meditating in Union Square Park and, and uh, just just being present in a way that I hadn't hadn't been before. Yeah. Are you still a meditator? Yeah, I teach meditation now. Wow. Oh, wow. Right. You love it. Yeah. I, it, it, well, it just it, it, it transformed my life. So I kind of ended up having to, you know, be able to offer it to others. Amazing. We also saw that you are like a horse guy. Yeah. Rancher nature. Uh, well, I was, I was raised on a farm. Uh, so I, 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 and I've had some horse experience. I rode a lot with a friend here in LA and, uh, Chloe Webb and I have ridden a lot together. Um, she was on China beach with me. You remember Chloe from, uh, Sid and Nancy. And she was also on shameless. She played the, the ex-wife. Uh, oh my God. I love, yes. I love yeah. shameless. Yeah. Um, did you go back to those roots during COVID times? Like, did you go back to Montana or anything or were you in LA? No, I stayed in LA. Yeah. It's Montana is kind of, uh, it's, it's a place to visit, but not to stay. <laughs> Understood. And then again, I know this was a long time ago, but going back to the scene in the bank with the knife, curious about special effects. Like what was that made out of? What do like, what are the fake knives made out of? Rubber. They are rubber. Okay. They are rubber. Yeah. Uh, and then sometimes you'll just have one that is really dull, but like in a scene like that, where you're going to get tackled, it's uh, almost always a rubber uh, so yeah. that you don't hurt yourself. Or Matt, that Mariska Hargitay doesn't hurt you. Right. <laughs> Cause she's tough. <laughs> yeah. How many episodes have they done? Like, they just wrapped so. the they just wrapped the twenty second season and I believe it was around the five hundredth episode. Oh so my God. it's like nuts. So many episodes. So many episodes. Yeah, and you're one of the most heinous of twenty two seasons. <laughs> <laughs> you're one of the scariest episodes. <laughs> That's well, that's that's something, right? Oh, yeah. Well, if you were to come back to SVU, they love to bring people back. What would kind of be what would you love to be? I, I, I would like to be a, a man of God, uh, uh, you know, some kind of a, a preacher who's not quite as creepy. Well, you did play something like that in Bosch, too. I did, but he was creepy. He, he was, come on. I'm telling was, you. He was a creepy man of God. But um, then you weren't the killer, but you weren't the bad guy, even though you were creepy. I was the red herring. Wasn't you were the I? red yeah. herring. Yeah. Kara loves Bosch. I love Bosch. She talks about <laughs> it all the time. I, I, I taught Titus how to meditate. Oh, my gosh. Well, he's an SVU alum, too. Oh, all right. We did a movie together, too, that C. Thomas Howell directed. Um, oh, wow. I, I killed him on a, a, it was on a table saw. I leaned him over a table saw and then turned it on. I kissed him as I was turning it on and then uh, sort of What movie is this? <laughs> I don't remember. Well, I'll be checking your IMDb. I'll have to look it up. <laughs> well, um, how did you get into acting like growing up on a ranch farm style? What was the moment? Um, I followed a woman from college down to L.A. And uh, that relationship broke up at about the same time that a band I was in broke up. And I was working in my first and only ever uh, office job for Getty Oil Company. I was a temporary paralegal. And I remember that being in college, uh, going to classes made sense. 
you like studied something, you took a test, you knew who you were, at least within those parameters. And I was completely lost. And I thought I need to go to a class. And one of the women that I was working with said, I go to this acting class, I think you'd really like it. And so I went to a, an acting class. And it was, you know, I was this big emotional mess. And there were people going on stage and being big emotional messes. And I went, Oh, God, I'm home. <laughs> and and that's, that's where it started. Wow. Well, thank God that girlfriend broke up with you. Right? Yeah. She, she, she I don't, I don't know what happened to her. Um, <laughs> so I, were you about, I bet Kara was about yeah, to well, bring I was up just going to say, speaking of girlfriends and, 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 you know, I, we read that you and your wife co-authored a book about, uh, called the art that pays the emerging artist guide to making a living. Yeah. And we want to know what the tips are. We Give are us artists. The tips. <laughs> We're artists. We're emerging. What's our tips? How do we make money? Do what you love. You're doing it. <laughs> yeah. This is it. Just keep doing it. You know, like I, I act, I teach meditation, I write, and I take, uh, I do tintype photography. These are all things that I do for free. And somehow I'm able to make a living by doing those things. And, and I, I do it because I've been just absolutely incapable of working for anyone else. I get fired <laughs> from every job I have, you know, so that's a gift because I've had to do, well, if I'm going to not be able to do anything else, I might as well do what I love. And uh, somehow I've been able to make a living at it. And they don't fire you from acting jobs. Not that's never happened. No, I got fired from a play. Oh. Uh, in Williamstown, um, because the uh, the writer of the play wanted to do the role. Oh my so, gosh! So he just got you booted. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'd like the listeners to know I rolled my eyes. Uh, that is <laughs> beyond. Do you still do theater? Is that oh, still a yeah. passion? Yeah, yeah. When I when I can, when when they let me, when it's good. And what are you writing? What do you like to write? Uh, I hate to admit it, but I'm actually about finished with a memoir. Why do you want not want to admit that? Well, because uh, it's I've I loathe memoir. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to read someone talking about themselves. And you know we have so much of that in life, like to have to read it too. But if I've you know I I have a story to tell, and it turns out that that's the way that the story wants to be told. So. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Thrilling. Would you like, is there anything that um, is coming out or you're working on that you would like people to know about? Well, I, uh, I wrote a movie that is out. They can uh, watch it on, uh, I believe it's on Amazon and Apple is called lie exposed with uh, Leslie hope and Bruce, Bruce Greenwood. Um, it, it's about a, a, a woman who's, is based on a, a a play that I wrote about people coming home from a uh, an art show, and the art show turns out to have been a, a series of images of a woman's uh, private parts, and it turns out that she was uh, she's dying of ovarian cancer, and she hooks up with this artist who takes pictures of her, and and she ends up putting on a show of it. Um, it's a very strange. Wow. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know where it came from. Yeah, I'll uh, say where did the inspiration come from? You have no clue. Well, I, I was writing a, a screenplay with a friend, and we had to have a scene of two actors working in this uh, screenplay um, on a play, and 
I'd never written a play, so I wrote a scene of these two people coming home from a show where they were arguing whether it was art or pornography. And I was teaching acting at the time, and I had my actors work on this scene so I could hear it out loud and 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 uh, make it better. And they said, this is great. Are there any other scenes? And I said, well, there must be other people who went to the same show. So I started writing all these people coming home from this art show. And in the in the play, you don't have to see the images. I mean, you know, yeah. just, you, you, but then uh, Leslie Hope wanted to use it as her swan song to acting. She's going to she's directing now. And uh, so we turned it into a screenplay. And in the screenplay, you can talk about these kind of images the whole time and then never see them. So right. uh, I had to then take images, uh, tintype images of, of uh, a friend. Intimate, intimate images, Uh, a friend. Yeah. A very good friend uh, who's, who's, who, who really uh, went above and beyond to like show up because it was hours of shots and trying to make something not look pornographic though. It's exposing uh, a a human's intimacy. Um, It was a challenge, but a, a fun one. That's cool. I want to watch it. Lie exposed. Okay. Lie exposed. All right. I'm so glad you're, uh, no, we knew you weren't going to be evil, but uh, (laughs) I definitely, you know, it's nice to learn about the meditation and writing and you just seem like you're creatively very fulfilled. I have a great life. Yeah. You know, I'm always doing something fun, always doing something creative uh, and I get paid for it. Uh, you know, this this general hospital thing, I'd never done soap operas, uh, but they hired me just before COVID happened. And then we started working sooner than just about anyone during COVID. And so that kept me, you know, fed Amazing. for the last year and a half. Yeah. I used to watch GH as a as a young person as well. And are Luke and Laura still there or what's? Laura is actually the mayor of Port Charles. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and as it turns out, she was my half sister. So we had a lot of work to do together. It was a lot of fun. Now, is your character, I think your character's name is Cyrus, which I always feel like is a, is a, is a bad guy name in soaps. Bad. You're a bad, bad guy? Okay. Really so bad. If you read the Twitter feed from when my character first came on, it was like, who is this bastard? Get rid of him. <laughs> he should die. Cyrus needs to die. They're so intense. These well, that's the reaction you fans. want, though, from soap opera characters, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, the bad yeah. guy in Con Air is Cyrus, and she Kara's never seen it. I need her to see Con Air. <laughs> Have you seen Con Air? No, I didn't see Con Air. Oh, it's one of my favorites. It's, uh, yeah, <laughs> Con's on a plane. I loved it. Do you have any con uh, uh, pen pals? Do you write? Oh no, to? we we we've never written anyone in jail. I I haven't. I speak for myself, Lisa. No, I haven't, and it is really tough. So I don't know if you know, but part of this podcast, we then research the real crimes that the episodes are based on. Oh, and this one took a lot out of me. I, I it was my turn to research the crime, and we just we research really awful things, yeah. and I don't know if I can. I don't know. But your character is based on a guy who truly did do like something exactly like this. Like the episode's uh, very closely based. So it's like, uh, yeah, there's a true crime, you know, there's a true crime addiction happening in this country right now. I don't know if you know about it. Wh- what do you think that's about? 
What? Why is that? I don't that? know. I don't know. But and it's a lot. It's ve- it's very female too. Like I mean, it's not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exclude men, but it's very like women make up the majority. I think of true crime consumers, and I don't know if it's like we're all scared we're going to get murdered. I don't know what it is. Do, do you think it's because people are are frightened and they need to have some place to aim that? Maybe. And I think people learn tips like um, there was a news story last month where a little girl, because she watched so much SVU, someone tried to kidnap her and she knew how to fight them off and leave evidence and what to do to escape the situation because Amazing. of the show. And there's a forensic files where this happened to a young woman was kidnapped and she was able to like leave fingerprints and like look at things and cues and look at the details of the car and was able to like catch the serial killer because of her knowledge. So unfortunately I do think we get tips from the show. Wow. Do you watch crime stuff? Like what do you watch? No, I, well, I, I watch, I, I like detective stuff. Um, I, I don't like slasher stuff. Yeah. That's that. I, I don't like that, but um, you know, like broad church, Oh, I love Broadchurch. Broadchurch was great. Um, So good. And there's uh, uh, the bridge, uh, Dust Broat to the, uh, it was a a Danish, Swedish co-production. I like Swedish noir, a lot of, you know. The bridge. Did they make that into a US one with Diane Kruger? Yeah, I watched that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't see the American version. No. Yeah, I only watched the American version, and I'm sure you're. I'm sure the foreign version was way better. Um, that's like the Broad Church that I watched as the British. You probably that's the one you yeah. watched, and the American yeah, yeah, one yeah. I don't think was as good. Another good British one is Happy Valley. I've heard this from so many yeah. people. If you're into that kind of thing. Okay. All right. I'm there. And that just, I think another part of the crime is like, we do like heroes in a way when these people are caught, like maybe it is a a fake sense of safety when you find out that these people are. Yeah. And that's what SVU does for people at least, because it ties up every scenario kind of in a bow at the end, you know, like even if it's, even if it's not a great outcome, I mean, in your episode, many children are not no longer living, but like, you know, we still, you get the guy and, you know, they kind of skip. I mean, they it's they don't spend a lot of time uh, being horrified about the dead children, do they? No. I mean, they do have, uh, you know, they send Chris Maloney's character home and, and Ice-T goes home to spend time with his kids, you know, and, and she's very upset with me. Yes. <laughs> she's talking to me. <laughs> Marishka's face. But Marishka has like other triggers of cases that really... Not Marisha, the character. Uh, I mean, Olivia. Has she been on your show? Oh, we're, no, we're that's the holy grail. You know, <laughs> once we get her, we got to end the show. So we're trying yeah. to make it last. <laughs> yeah, we had one listener write in, like, hey, you should get Marishka Hargate on the show. And it's like, yeah. great idea. Great <laughs> idea. Uh, <laughs> but we also, we kind of want to meet her in person. We, we've obviously built up this fantasy in our head yeah. of going to New York and going to set and seeing her, you know? <laughs> I, I support you in that. Thank you. She, I, one day she'll do it. I, I think because she's she is just she is just uh, so open and and full and alive and and uh, really just a normal a normal person. I mean, Lisa, that was such a great conversation. I just like love talking to him. I want to go ride a horse with him in Malibu. What's going on? Yeah, it was amazing. And it just shows, um, I don't know, especially in our line of work, I was actually doing two people's podcasts that are like successful. And they were like, well, I think we'd be more successful if we did this. And I'm like, 
you guys are successful. And I think yeah. there's so much of a rat race at times or you never think you're fulfilled or there's always someone doing more, having more. And it is so nice to talk to someone that's like, yeah, I'm living the dream. Like I'm getting paid for yeah. creative work. I'm working on stuff. I audition for projects. I don't know. I ride a horse like that. That should be more people's vibes. Yeah. He kind of makes me want to get into meditation. I've tried no, many times to meditate. I don't think I can do it. Us. Yeah, you're right. But he but but Jeff, you made me want to try again. So that's saying something. I'll get high and go to yoga. <laughs> I'll get high and go watch a sunset. Yeah, I will do whatever, <laughs> but I'm not going to listen to meditation, do meditation. No, every, I always fall asleep. I also don't believe it. I mean, I'm sure people could get to a meditative state, like just cause I can't experience it doesn't make it not real, but like, I don't believe it for you. No, yeah. I don't believe people are. I think they're pretending. <laughs> I think it's like when people talk in tongues or like, they think they're like, Oh Jesus, talk to me. I don't believe it. That's so funny because my husband who grew up in a church where people speak in tongues, like loves meditation and says it really chills him out. And really like, he says it really works for him. But then of course he stopped doing it for like a while and has to always rediscover it. I feel like that's everybody's journey with meditation. It's the best thing ever that you forget about doing for months at a time. And then you have to keep rediscovering it. The only people that I know that do it regularly are um, our friends, Sam and Eric. And I've stayed with them before. And I would ruin Eric's meditation every time. I would just bust <laughs> into his office without knocking. And he'd be like, I'm meditating. Like, I would just. <laughs> no, you You know, what's funny is I had a boss. I had a like a like an executive boss. I was his assistant for a while in New York. And he would always go, I'm going to be meditating. And he was napping. He was always just napping. Like he was on the couch in his office, closing his eyes and going to sleep. And I was like, you can call it meditating, but you're taking a full nap. Which is closer to God than anything I've ever experienced. Oh, I love a nap. Yeah. Nap over anything. I can only do shorty naps. I can't do those long naps. They make me feel crazy. But let's get into our postmortem. We <laughs> no, can talk about yes. napping in our postmortem. <laughs> um, these, unfortunately, the children in this episode uh we're not napping they were dead and this was such a tough episode to watch um but i think that when you experience something we, what we learn as we always learn and what we always tell people is like when you experience something traumatic it's okay to go to get help it's okay to talk to somebody stabler um so that's like always a lesson i feel like we pull from this show it's like oh yeah i did see something pretty fucked up maybe i'll go talk to someone and try to process that instead of burying it deep and in the world, when someone's acting a fool, instead of right away judging them, maybe take a moment and go, maybe they were in an incest vampire cult and escaped and maybe we should be nicer. Yes. I just so think true. more people around us constantly are going through violent traumas that we can't yes. even imagine and that yes. we are just so mean. And I'm including myself. And including most criminals. I mean, almost every criminal, I feel like, yeah. has a traumatic past. Because I'm someone that's not always patient with others. And um, it's like a reminder to be like, oh, yeah, you just don't know what people have been through. Yeah. And escaped. And then, um, li yeah, listen to Benson <laughs> <laughs> or to the women that were like, the kids will be harmed. Please help them. And the cops go, we'll be fine. It's like, yeah, I don't even know. Listen to mothers. I don't know. Yeah, that, I don't know if that's the the lesson, but it's like. You, I guess with police, you just never know what the right decision is, you know? Yeah. And I think if you're a shady bank guy who's helping a cult leader embezzle money and you want to take a lady out for a nice vacation, it's not going to be Tampa, dog. That's not the place. 
that's not the place. It's not Tampa. Let's go Miami. Let me, let's avoid Florida right now, but, uh, you know, somewhere, I don't know, a little bit more. What's a good romantic whisk away for the weekend place? Santa Barbara. I don't know. Any, anywhere can be romantic, including Tampa. Yeah. The Backstreet Boys are from there. I would go visit all their houses. (laughs) So romantic. (laughs) Oh my God, is this AJ's house? Wait, is that a Backstreet Boy? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Whew, I thought maybe I did an instinct by accident. Wait, Lisa, I can't believe I've never told you this because I think this is a pretty funny thing about me. Um, when I was uh, the summer between my junior and senior year in college, I went, I lived in Boston. I took a year off camp. I decided to go to Boston and I wanted to get an internship to like, I don't know, help me get a job or something after college. I had no idea what I was doing. I ended up getting a internship at the Boston Sports Museum. I have no fucking idea. I applied too late. There were no internships left. It was terrible, but they also had concerts. And so I was like, oh, okay. Like the Boston Sports Museum, like had con, it was like, cause it was part of a stadium. So there would be concerts there. And I was like, all right, at least I'll get to see some cool concerts. The Backstreet Boys canceled their concert because AJ got, went into rehab. And I was like, I quit. I quit the job based on the Backstreet Boys pulling out of a concert. Wow. There. And I got a waitressing job and I had the summer of my life. <laughs> well, cause I was about to say, it's weird. You could, you didn't suck up any sports information from interning at the Boston sports museum, but now I understand you quit. It lasted one week. <laughs> <laughs> no waitressing's way more fun than an, an internship. Yeah. yeah. It was much more fun. I thought I needed it to like pad my resume or whatever. Cause I was going out into the cruel cold world a, a year later, but look, look what happened. I'm fine. I do comedy. <laughs> well, I think another lesson that I learned in terms of is like Jeff had no idea he was playing a bad guy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like to really get into that and be like, no, I'm helping everybody. Like that is a that's something. I don't know what it is, but just something to think about if I ever get a role as um, a killer. I also find it wild how many people we interview that say that they don't watch themselves. I feel like I would watch my thing and like over like analyze it and be like obsessed with watching it. But maybe that's just because I have a narcissistic I personality watching everything. <laughs> I mean, we, we watched the King of Staten Island together. Um, yes, but I, have never I loved it. Watched it since. But that was really fun and exciting. And it was a small part. But if I was like getting assaulted and crying on the stand, that might be more difficult to watch. Right. To watch over. Yeah. Watch many times. But. Also, I'm sure your friends text you and are like, your episode's on or whatever, because SVU is constantly running on 12 different channels. Yeah, um, but it's cool. And it's um, it's interesting to know that like someone that we, of course, assumed just got an in was like auditioning. Yeah, yeah, totally. Never be too proud. Never be too proud to audition. And that he was, you know, went to the Richard Ramirez. I mean, is this oh, is our postmortem was... just how much we're in love with Jeff and we'll do anything yeah, he says? Kind of. Kind he of. could be a cult leader. I think we're learning That's watch out for Jeff. <laughs> As a he could be a nice guy cult leader. He's like a good he's he's definitely has like a great like and magnetic personality, but not in a way that tells you to like, you know, never bathe and live without electricity for eight years. Okay, let's move on. Uh, Speaking of cults, uh, for this week's What Would Sister Peg Do?, which is our weekly segment where we point you to an organization or an article or some kind of resource that can help you get more information on the subjects we touched on in today's episode. This week, uh, we wanted to direct you towards another episode of a podcast. Um, There is a podcast called Cults, and there is an episode called The Wesson Vampire Clan. And... uh, 
it's a just a more in-depth look at you know we only have half of our episode to um hit on the crime and this just has a more in-depth look into what happens to that poor family and uh marcus wesson's evil ways so check out our show notes for the link to that or you can just go find cult wherever you podcast and find that episode and next week's episode join us as we will be talking about dissonant voices season 15 episode 7 so watch it on hulu peacock and anywhere any streaming service in the country that you're in you know what i mean <laughs> or a fire stick. I hear that's a thing. <laughs> yeah, hit us up, message us. Thanks for listening. Bye. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmesseduppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to SVU Superfan and our incredible producer, Hannah Kyle Creighton. And to our sound engineer and personal hero, Annalise Nelson. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song. To Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thanks to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. Dun, dun. dun. <laughs>